Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've known Rahm Emanuel for more than 35 years. I met him when he was a young operative for the Illinois Public Action Council involved in campaigns in the early 80s when I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I worked with him on many campaigns after, and I worked for him in the Obama White House when he was the president's chief of staff. For the past eight years, he's been mayor of the city of Chicago, a job that he'll leave in April. A larger-than-life figure, he has many fans and some detractors, but whether you love him or hate him, he's hard to ignore. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, my old friend, good to be with you here in the world's greatest city, <laughs> uh, city you've led for the last eight years. We, we have a lot to talk about there, but first I got to ask you to put on uh, your other hats mm-hmm. uh, as the guy, first of all, who just might w- dip with yarmulkes for the Jewish exactly holidays. Okay. happy Hanukkah. <laughs> the um, the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. You were the last guy who was an architect of. A Democratic takeover in 2006. Mm-hmm. You won 30 seats. Mm-hmm. Democrats won 40 seats this year with a very difficult map mm-hmm. uh, and um, and a good economy. So why did Democrats prosper this year? Well, first, that last point is really a significant point, the economy. Um, it is a wave election. If you look at 1982, you look at, uh, you can say, 74, 82, 94, 06, 10, when you've had wave elections, those are in sour-like economies. The fact is, with 3.7%, 3.8% unemployment, Democrats had no business taking not only 40 seats, the second most since Watergate. And what's a wave election? It's a force bigger than every impediment. Economy, map, money, or playing the voter registration rolls, as Republicans often do. And that counts. Now, when you kind of put 06 and 08 together, which is what happened. Democrats won back-to-back mid, uh, kind of midterms and presidential. It did better in 06 and 08 combined. But oh, so this is really significant. And what happened was all the voters that I would call anti-Hillary voters but not pro-Trump left Donald Trump, mainly in the suburbs, and came to the Democratic Party. And you created, I think, a unique opportunity not just to have voters that re- walked away from Donald Trump and into our arms, our goal now must be to put, them, put our arms around them what, and on the congressional level, which is what I call the metropolitan majority, issues that cross both the urban uh, center and the suburban. On the other hand, what's probably more significant is if you look at the gubernatorial races in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, you see actually Democrats also not only doing well in urban and suburban, but actually minimizing their losses in the kind of cities of 150,000 or less. And that, to me, deserves much more Mm -hmm. um, unwrapping and understanding. And I would almost say 90% of that, showing up and saying, we appreciate your life, 
We don't look down on it. And we appreciate your kids' future. It counts, not just in the urban centers. I wanna, and we have to actually speak to that. I want to get into that in a second because it has something to do with the 2020 mm -hmm. uh, presidential election. Big time. But the shift in the suburbs, which was profound. I mean, if you went back to 2006 and looked at some of the districts that shifted, not just in northern mm -hmm. uh, coastal areas in the suburbs, but in uh, Oklahoma City and mm -hmm. South Carolina and, and mm -hmm. Georgia and so on, you, you would have said this is impossible. Mm -hmm. is, this a, uh, is this a permanent shift? Is this, everybody likes to talk realignment. Yeah, I don't, I would, um, nothing is permanent in politics. I think it's a u unique opportunity for us. Now, the truth is we did do well in the suburbs uh, in 06, but also in rural areas that we, will, we didn't do well congressionally. I think what's happened is the voters are clearly in the suburban areas turned off by Donald Trump. If we do what we're supposed to do on minimum wage, if we do what we're supposed to do on prescription drugs and other health care costs, if we do what we're supposed to do on transportation, easing people's commute, etc., we can actually create a bind between urban and suburban. I think it's a false argument, David, to say, oh, you've got to really have an energized base and then kind of forget the suburbs. No, you've got to create a coalition that is withstands and stands stronger for 2020. And what we do between 2018 and 2020, we'll either say this was a unique opportunity we seized or we fitted it away and we actually didn't make it. And so nothing's permanent, but I think if the Republican Party stays as angry as Donald Trump, as ugly as Donald Trump, I think that's a unique opportunity for the Democrats to actually open up and build a stronger, more stable coalition that not only wins gubernatorial races and House races, but the ultimate prize, the White House. Back in 2006, uh, and I was involved with that race with you uh, then, you were, a, uh, you were all about command and control. I mean, you went around the country, you recruited candidates, you famously discouraged candidates, and I use the word discouraged uh, liberally I, there. I think they would have a different adjective to describe yeah, what I Yeah, I think did. they would. But we're on television, <laughs> and so we're not going to go And this go is a family-friendly TV but, show. But uh, this was completely different. Mm -hmm. There was a gusher of candidates in this election. There yeah. were primaries all over the country. Uh, you would never have predicted, for example, in the exurbs of Chicago that an African-American woman, 32 years old, in a district that was 94%, 96% unseated a Republican in a district that the uh, former Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, once It also happened in Newt Gingrich's district. Yeah. Both Newt Gingrich, the Speaker of the House, Denny Hassert, Speaker of the House, both Republicans, both districts uh, voted for Mitt Romney and for Donald Trump, both elected African-American women. And in 06, after the 04 loss, we had to go out and recruit. After the 2016 loss, candidates recruited themselves. It was a different environment. Um, but there are districts to go back, take Indiana next door to us. A lot of David. people fear, let me just interrupt yeah. for a lot of people feared that. A lot of people said... Can't have all sure. these primaries. We're going to get these, you know, we're going to get crazy fringe candidates. Uh, it's going to destroy an opportunity to uh, to take the House. Didn't happen. Well, certain districts in urban areas did have primaries, and incumbents got knocked off. In suburban districts, actually, uh, I don't want this is at 10,000 feet. You can always find something that didn't work. A more, uh, I would not say centrist in the sense of ideology, more moderate uh, candidates in the sense of tone and tenor. Uh, got nominated. Uh, but, you know, the difference between if you're trying to always draw a comparison, in uh, Evansville, Indiana, I recruited a sheriff, Brad Ellsworth. 
uh, he and went on to win that district in the southeast corner, or southwest corner of the state, uh, rural, mainly it was like 20 some odd counties. You couldn't recruit there in telling you the shift by uh, literally 12 years later, you couldn't recruit a candidate and win that district, let alone recruit a serious candidate. And so you can do that. Uh, because it's a rural It's area. a rural area. Uh, and I shouldn't say can't, it's just much harder than it was uh, on the 06 uh, cycle than it was today. And some of the roots that were put down over the years just got deeper. Uh, my big thing right now is to uh, do two things. Take this opportunity and solidify it and create a pathway to the victory in 2020, which is everything. We did it, and now I said this before, but in the shadows of uh, President Bush's funeral, George Mitchell in 1990 made him Senate yeah, majority, Senate majority leader. leader by making Bush walk away from no read my lips, no new taxes, created a crack in the Republican base that Bill Clinton could seize. In 06 to 08, uh, both Nancy Pelosi as a speaker, I was the caucus chair, uh, uh, Steny, uh, we created by forcing President Bush to deal with the surge, with kid health care, fissures in the Republican base that created a pathway for Barack Obama. That's what is right now the most important thing to think about. And we have to focus on the issues that solidify this opportunity rather than literally kick it uh, away. And then B, set up 2020 uh, where Trump's foundation gets cracked and you create uh, fissures in the Republican base. You know, one of the other things that was, uh, that's different is you, you were a, 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 a celebrated fundraiser. Uh, 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 you know that's that was your first identity, and you that was a great advantage when you were cheering the mm -hmm. the uh, the D Triple C. This year, uh, Democrats outraised Republicans. I've never seen it in my lifetime, but almost a billion dollars Democratic no, candidates raised. A lot of it online. Yeah, I think the whole thing is in past and prior to this cycle. If Democrats were competitive with Republicans on money, that was a victory. We, that was always their edge. We eliminated it. Here, it's a total, it's a, this is the Wild West, total new world, and hopefully the voters and the uh, uh, online donors stay as active in that process. I mean, it could be a Trump effect. Not could. You can strike that word. Yeah. It is yeah. a Trump effect. And, and so the question is, is does it continue? Uh, nothing guaranteed. And Trump would argue that everybody needs him. Television, te television networks Media. need him. Yeah. His opponents need him. The only and he's the show. He's right about that, except for one thing: America doesn't need him. <laughs> I mean, he's yeah. For all those people that kind of play in the political arena, he has been a boon. That's just he's not wrong. The problem is. It's a boon for him and for media. It's really disastrous for America. And if you score it his way, he's right. If you don't score it his way, you score it, which is why we're involved in public policy or politics, he's really dangerous. You said 2020 is everything. What, ha what, what would it mean to the country, in your view, uh, if uh, he were to be reelected? Uh, let me quote my grandmother. Oi. Uh, no, this is, here's the thing. I think he is very damaging to America. I don't agree with his policies. I think he's not only damaging at home and playing on major, major fissures that need to be uh, dealt with and healed and damaging America overseas. Eight years in control of the White House and the apparatus of government would actually atrophy, not just atrophy, but actually do serious damages 
damage to the capacity of America to meet challenges at home and abroad. And I think uh, four years are clearly, we're not even at two years, we're at the two-year mark, and it's, uh, well, January make it two-year mark. It's unbelievably uh, damaging. Eight years of this would be uh, something I'm not sure how long it would take for America to recuperate for, and rec recover from. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi before. You're very close to her. Mm -hmm. You helped uh, make her the Speaker of the House uh, back in 2006 by leading the effort to, to take the House. Why is she such a, a lightning rod? Well, one thing is, look, my thing is, I am close. Now, we, let's be clear, we had our differences. And I, as Chief of Staff for President Obama, uh, we used to fight a lot. Uh, but I respect her tenacity. I think that yeah. Talk a little bit about her before we talk about the lightning rod thing. Talk about those things that you think are her her, Here's her, my thing, her assets. Nobody who's effective or a leader is a hundred percent. They're going to have they they by nature have forces that are both real strong for and real strong against. That's what makes a leader. Um, look, I think she when I, we just talked about fundraising. She's a tenacious fundraiser. That gives Democrats an advantage, uh, or not an advantage, but eliminates a Republican advantage. She is an incredible strategist, tactitioner inside a caucus. One illustration to you, David, you know this. Uh, when we passed uh, President Obama's health care bill, she got, you know, there's institutional hatred between the House and Senate. Yeah. There's not partisan. The one thing the House can always agree on, regardless of party, is that the Senate was a constitutional mistake to do that, okay? <laughs> The fact is, she got the House caucus to adopt basically the, Republic, uh, the Democrats' health care bill. That and was they a, didn't want to. Uh, that I would mean, be a bone in your yeah. throat. The idea that you wouldn't go to conference on a major policy. And so that tell, and then she did it because she could keep her eye on the prize. And it would have been care. impossible to redo the bill in the Senate. Democrats had lost their... Yeah, and she basically... So what does she do? Let's replay the tape. She attacks it, attacks it, attacks it to prove her bona fides to her caucus and then goes in and says, this is what we're going to do because the Senate can't pass it. And she ends up passing uh, the bill that she said uh, is got to be changed. Very smart. Very capable of showing her uh, left that she had to do that. Now, the end of the day... She got that done, and that makes her, uh, in my view, an incredible legislative and political tacticianer. I think if you looked at the uh, deficit side, uh, the two big uh, claims uh, that are out there, one is she's been there so long and it's time for a new fresh phrase, of leadership and a capacity. The second item is that um, her inside strengths don't come across on the outside game. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Nancy would be the first to tell you that she wants to elevate other people to be voices for the Democratic Party. Anybody knowing anything knows that she's not going to be there for another 20 years, et cetera. But I think there's that, this is kind of the um, energy that comes off in an election. There are a bunch of people because of that uh, uh, aura she has out there. Uh, a bunch of Democrats running in these uh, contested districts promised not uh, to vote for her. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you advise them as someone who... Well, first of all, if I was giving them advice, I wouldn't do it on this show. Because that's a... Uh, well, this you... is, but this is a convenient <laughs> and, I think, efficient way to do it. So, uh, what, <laughs> That's what, your judgment. <laughs> what would you... Uh, well, they all watch it. So what would you, uh, what would you... I mean, don't they have a problem? No, look. That was made, a very visible, you don't want many your, of them advertised on it. You don't want the first, well, let me say one thing for all those who are saying this. If that was the case, there were, I mean, I, this is one way to interpret the election, not the, A. The Republicans try to make Nancy Pelosi an issue. 
we made the issues the issue on health care cost education, the Republican argument didn't work because we won more seats than any other time since Watergate. So you can actually answer that politically. The challenge uh, she has to figure out, and this is where her legislative skills and tacticians of maybe having another vote, a vote that uh, creates that see people can say X versus Y, um, is if you made a pledge, you don't want people to have the first vote you cast is to go back on that pledge. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a tactical way she... Uh, and she's it. awfully good at that. That's really and, what distinguishes right. and her. And I think that you got to get... Uh, some concessions about change. I think the House rules should be updated, and the House rules based on what is allowed on the floor. There's got to be a more openness, a more transparency. I think that goes to something Nancy's comfortable with and should be comfortable with, and I think it's a legitimate thing that then members uh, knew and some uh, um, members that are in their second or third term can at least say, these are changes and concessions we got. So there's some element to change to the way the process works. Part of the impatience, and if you, I, I can only imagine what you would be saying if you well, were. Impatience is if not you one were of my the, strong no, suits. No, no, it is not. And you were the number four yes. uh, uh, ranking Democrat in the House when you, when you left in 2008, where 10 years later, the same three leaders are the leaders. Mm -hmm. They're all uh, in their upper 70s, and the complaint is it's a legitimate, we need some upward mobility here. It's my, so that, but that can be done. At committee chairs, that can be done at a lot of different levels. How you know, one of the things maybe there should be term limits for committee chairmen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of I mean, so there's a lot of things that would go against the grain. And here's one of the things that I would say to the Democratic leadership. So let me rather you wanted me to speak to the new, I'm going to speak to the leadership. Yeah, consider this your opportunity to talk to anybody you want. Mom, I love you. Mm -hmm. uh, no, here is what I would say. Stop saying uh, return the party to the Democratic control. It's not the period of time from Sam Rayburn all the way through to, uh, uh, I was going to say Jim Wright, but uh, other members of the leadership of the Democratic Party. The fact is what worked in the 60s and 70s when Democrats had a 40-year control is not true today. We're in the 21st century. In this process, I would say to the leadership of the Democratic Party in the House, you need some wholesale changes that give a breath of fresh air, not just to the people at the top, but to the way the process works. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you give a channel where uh, the newer members got... Let's say the, we got something. Not, we got real reform and changes. The House Democrats, the majority now, face a choice, or at least they face a challenge, in that uh, there is a lot of energy for oversight that hasn't we mm -hmm. haven't seen a lot of in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, they all, But there's also an opportunity for overkill uh, in which that defines everything mm -hmm. that, uh, that they do. How do they navigate that? Don't focus immediately on Trump. Focus immediately. You have something with the Secretary of Labor. You have with EPA. You have in, uh, Interior Department. You have it at the Commerce Department. You have it at HUD. He has brought the swamp to Washington and flooded the, flooded the plains. And I think re Mueller will deal with Trump. And he's begun to turn over his cards. Uh, That's right. You don't have to go and lead Mueller. You need Mueller to lead. You have an entire government that is not on its game protecting the American people. The House should focus there. Now, and that what about, Ron, what about the things that people uh, voted on, the things you mentioned earlier on, on health care and these well, other issues? Look at what they're doing to EPA and the, and the environment. Now, if you wanted to communicate to urban and suburban voters, 
the, the uh, relationship and the, and the literally cahoots between both the polluters and the departments, people that came out of these very polluters are writing the laws to ease up on them. To me, I would just go into the Interior Department and the EPA and literally watch wholesale what people believe happens in Republican administrations. And that, to me, is worthy of oversight. I would also do it in the financial area. I think, and I basically, the entire oversight or division between the public and private sector has been blurred. You can't tell the difference between some of these agencies and the very um, companies and industries that are doing some real damage. And before you get to Donald Trump, you have an entire government that, and if you, and here's the other thing, people think that Democrats are going to go there. So don't do what's predicted. Go to where actually there's news. The first, I always say. What the, if Mueller lays his report on the table and it's a damning report? Well, that's different, but he hasn't. And that doesn't mean your responsibilities to the EPA and to the entire, not to EPA, to the pollution, to financial oversight, to what's going on in the student loan industry. Mm -hmm. That, you know, what's happening in the student loan industry? And so to me, if Mueller lays it down, that's different. Before he lays it down, you also got to walk and chew gum. There's an entire element where the blurring between industry and government agencies is not, is, there is no line. They become one and the same, and the American people are paying for it. You, uh, 2000, and not in a very positive way. Presumably he's going to try and run against the House majority not now. Not presumably. You know what he's going to do. And, and make them mm -hmm. a foil in this election. Looking to 2020, are you, uh, are you worried that the Democratic Party will, in the fight for the nomination, uh, turn too ideological, too focused on Trump? Uh, well, he is the factor. I mean, there's just no getting away from it. I think, I mean, this is not fair because you and I share this view. I think I would both on substance, but as equally valuable on style, and I don't mean style in a bad way, on narrative uh, and character, I would actually look for very clear contrasting points with, uh, with the president. I actually think, David, American people are exhausted. And more than exhausted, they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, and it's a, a, enough. And they know that what he's doing is 45 percent of them give him uh, high, high marks or 40 percent. You're asking me that today. Yeah. He, he, look, in all due respect, I actually don't think that's impressive with 3.7 percent unemployment. Mm -hmm. I actually look at it the different way. Fact is, David, if President Obama, Bill Clinton or Bush were uh, president today with this economy, they would not be at 45 percent. They would all be 55 or north. And I, now one of the things interesting that I look at is you look at President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, three eight-year eight presidencies. The last time that happened was Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. We're due for a one-termer. Doesn't guarantee anything, but we're due. So my view on that, now that's been 200 years. My view on this is uh, to focus and look at where do you have both substantive and stylistic, and I actually think to his disunity, we offer unity. To his abrasiveness, we offer a more gentle. Doesn't mean you play gentle politics, but you make sure. You've never been an exponent of that, but nor have you. So let's not let's be clear. We have been clear for contrast, but those contrasts can work dramatically. I actually think the American people know that the country and its leadership are off uh, on a dirt path, and they want to get it back. So you know a lot of the people whose names are being bandied about. You can't beat someone with no one. Uh, so, so handicap 
uh, this for me, uh, starting with a guy who I think would be the front runner. He's now hinting, uh, he said this week he'd be the most qualified candidate, and that's the guy that you and I worked with in the White House, the Vice President Joe Biden. Well, here's my, um, I have a different premise. I'm trying to look for history to draw lessons. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all younger than the age of 50, all from outside of Washington. Uh, and obviously President Obama was a senator, but he barely unpacked his suitcase before he started running. All of them, two of them governor of southern states. I, my general rule is that has, uh, what, that has worked for us. When President Trump att gets attacked on his tweets, it usually communicates to his base he's the outsider trying to change Washington. The last thing I think we need is a nominee who owns Washington. If you stayed there longer than two weeks, I really don't think that's our place. It's not only worked, not worked for us historically. So I'm not, my attitude is who brings a fresh face, an energy that contrasts best with uh, uh, Donald Trump? And I don't think, and, I, and then there's demographics, meaning who would appeal to working, uh, working class voters. Uh, and I believe that's very, very important. You're yeah. not going to just win it in suburban and urban <clears throat> uh, coalition. Let me ask you, though, because the, you describe an outsider, someone under 50, someone from the South, and you just put a big uh, foot on the butt of Beto O'Rourke uh, a couple of uh, days ago, and you said he was, you called him a loser, and you said we don't usually advance losers. No, that and, I, and, and that created a big stir because mm -hmm. the guy did better in Texas than anybody has in 20 what years, what Democrat, what I, raised $70 million, I, became a national figure. Okay. What I said was, look at what we're communicating. First of all, I'm a great admirer, admirer of what he did and what he did in that area, and not only fundraising but also on his vote. My point was about the party. What party takes a person who led the party to the greatest wins in the House since Watergate and says we're going to cut your knees off and then says we want to nominate somebody who didn't, do, who didn't win. It wasn't about him. I admire what he did. It's about our party that I don't admire. And the second thing is because we're literally, since an election, you and I are talking, it's one month. Have we said anything to the voters about the minimum wage? Have we said anything to the voters about we're going to move a prescription drug cost control bill? Have we said anything to the voters about what we're going to do on insurance companies or on student loans? We've actually only talked about either who's going to be in the House leadership or who's going to be in, what persons we're going to nominate for the party. We haven't said a single thing in one month to the voters of this, of this country who just said, uh, we need I, you to help us. You. And so my point is, our party is actually, it's not what he did. I'm an admirer, and it's not... With but you know House. what, in tone, I don't know who should be the nominee of the Democratic Party. In tone and tenor, he, he presented a great counterpoint, and he that's why a, he did well. And it seems to me that the party needs a, a primary and uh, I, to, I, to determine who the nominee should be. Well, obviously, I wanted David, did I say anywhere that we shouldn't have a primary? Wait a second. What kind of question? I, of course we're going to have a primary. And I said he should run and put his name forward. But my point was, one month after the election, uh, we're, I got your point. we're talking about that. We're talking about the House Speaker, and we've said to the voters... Bupkis, nothing, zero. They voted for a change. They voted for a set of issues on health care cost control, transportation, mm -hmm. a whole set of uh, economic issues that in one month, and remember, right after the election, they're taking a second look. What did we fill it in with? Nothing that matters to them. 
And everything we talked about is what matters to us. That is how you fitter away in a unique opportunity. You, uh, you've been, uh, as, as we've mentioned, you were the number four uh, ranking member of the House. Uh, you've been a counselor to one president, chief of staff to another. But the job that you say you love the best was the one you have now and the one that you're giving up, which is mayor of the city of Chicago. Why? Well, first of all, I love the job because I love the people and I love the city. Um, and I'm giving it up, uh, and it took a lot of thinking about, is I got to forget the Clinton years. In 2002, I got elected to Congress. Two years later, I was made head of chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Two years later, I was made number four in the House caucus chair. Two years later, I was chief of staff for President Obama. And basically, two years later, I was made, I got elected mayor of the right. city. I, I'm not asking you why you're leaving. I'm asking thought, you why you love the job. Oh, I thought you said, uh, why did you walk away from the job you love? Um, uh, which... Explain. I was basically knew that the third term, given my energy level, to finish the question that you should have asked uh, on there. I love this job because you can make a difference in people's lives and also know it. Um, uh, I told you about the Chicago Star. You spent most of your life in Washington, your public life, so before this job. No, I mean, every time I like graduated college, I came back and lived here. Started no, I understand, but, but as right. a public official, it, this is different than Washington uh, being the mayor Congress, of the city. I got elected four terms. I just slightly disagree, David. At least uh, in Congress, I considered myself part of Chicago. I worked in Washington for part of it, worked here for part of it. I, I think today cities are uh, emerging in a way as an economic, intellectual, cultural energy of the economy. And Chicago mayor, you can put your thumb on the scale and tip things. Give you one illustration. I've added full-day kindergarten for every child. Didn't exist before. I've added full-day pre-K for every child in the city of Chicago. Didn't exist before. We added That's still happening now. Yeah, over the four trans, years, yeah. but we already mm -hmm. added thir another 3,800 kids. We've grown it by 70%. We've added an hour and a half to every day and two weeks to every year. I've added four years to a child's education than a child 15 years ago mm -hmm. To me... That makes a tra trajectory difference. We now match the United States, even though 83% uh, of the kids are from poverty or below in this public school system. 44% of our kids go to college. That's the same for the United States as a whole. Another 21%, uh, rather another 22% uh, go to community college. That's the same. And our demographics are slightly more challenging. To me, and that wasn't true eight years ago. Yeah. And that, to me, is why public life is uh, not just public life, but specifically being mayor. You can actually do something, see it, feel it. Now, I took the train in to work today. You can hear the good, the bad, the ugly from constituents, which is... Uh, Hard to get away when you're the mayor. You don't want to get away right. uh, from that. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there are things... Today, I'm going to go do an announcement and a speech about how to encourage men of color to become school principals. Because I actually think for young uh, men of color, walking through the halls of school and seeing a young uh, mm -hmm. man who is the principal can actually be a very influential, and we know that from research. And to me, these are things that you can do as a mayor. And I just actually also think You also do something. You shut 50 schools down at the beginning of your administration because the schools had a fiscal crisis. And also were failing and, academically. And that was a hugely uh, controversial decision. We... 
So the way I look at it is, it, yes, it was, as it is for the parochial school system. I've extended the school day in the year, added years that never were uh, provided for, and we took 49 schools that were not performing and under-enrolled and continue to lose people and actually got a, every child, as the University of Chicago said, to a better performing school and b doing better academically. And our graduation look, look, rate has gone from 56 to 78 percent. Right. And, and, and so to look, me, you, you, we, let's stipulate that. Let's stipulate that you've tra transformed the community colleges. Headquarters have come back. Yet as we sit here uh, in downtown Chicago, mm -hmm. you go a few miles out and you've got uh, a war going on and uh, gun violence that has become uh, a national symbol. Why is Chicago so subject uh, to violence? Well, David, you're a resident. You know that. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a couple things and there's a couple factors. One, uh, easy access to guns. We're on a two-year record high seizing guns, but there's no stopping to it. We have, uh, unlike New York or, or L.A., we don't have Connecticut New Jersey gun laws. We have gun laws that are reflect Wisconsin and Indiana. You and I want to get in a car, drive 20 minutes, I can get you anything you want, just place the order. And two of them each, with no restrictions. 40% of the guns we see, 60% of the guns we see here in the city come from outside uh, Illinois. Second is, we have lighter sentences for gun crimes than New York. They have a three-year minimum. We have a one-year minimum. Uh, there's so, and then we have an, a different, more entrenched uh, gang culture. Uh, now, it is a reflection of parts of the city, not the whole city, but it is a challenge for the whole city. Now, the good news is the superintendent and the police department, with community leaders, are now on a two-year uh, significant decline in both shootings and uh, homicides. We have a spasm, like other cities in 2016, that we're getting our hands around and making progress on. 4,000 4, uh, people murdered uh, since you became mayor, 19,000 uh, wounded. Do you, when you look back at your years, you, you're, you've recited a lot of things that you're proud of and uh, accomplishments. How painful is that? Uh, I think you, you know as a friend how painful that is, especially since I make a, I don't want to say a habit, but I always call and visit uh, families that, uh, who have kids affected. Uh, and I'm, it's not the numbers, it's any individual, and I want no parent to feel alone. And I do it more, not as a mayor, but I do it as a father of three. I couldn't get out of bed. I would be, if anything happened to my three kids. And I regularly check in on uh, uh, mothers and grandmothers um, so they don't think that they're alone in the loneliest moment of uh, their time. Um, the first call I do every morning, and the first data I check is and talk to is the, super, is the first deputy of the police department to see what's happened. Now, the good news is we're making some progress. The problem is it's a, a challenge of guns. And it's is it also, just guns? No, it's a, but that's a big piece of it. You, David, you have too many guns, too little values. You have a bad combination. And we have to deal with some issues that relate to values, the, uh, empty, the sense that kids are lost. And I, when I say values, we had a situation three years ago where a young girl, 13 years old, shot another young girl. Her uncle, who was a victim of gun violence, got on a bus in a wheelchair, go to get a gun, brings it back, gives it to the 13-year-old, all in a wheelchair, and he himself is a victim of gun violence. Gives it to the 13-year-old, it locks, he unlocks it, and she shoots the other 13-year-old. It is both the access to that gun, 
and it's the lack of value. So you think with, it's, and, it's, I, and I also you think you seem to be blaming the the families of these. That's kids. not what I'm saying. You know that, David. I also think economics is a factor. You asked me to list them all. Mm -hmm. I do think guns. I think when it, we've had a situation where a young man has taken a t uh, young boy off a playground, walked him into an alley for 100 feet, and shot him dead. And for that 100 feet, nothing goes off in their head that this is wrong. I think there's economics that are a factor. I think there's a lack of accountability in the criminal justice system. I think there's a whole host of factors. And that is, I actually wholesale reject what you just said, and you know that. And so what I would say is that there's a lot of things that uh, deal with it, and you have to deal with all of them, not some of them. La Laquan McDonald is a name that will be uh, part of your legacy. The young man who was killed, the officer who shot him was just convicted mm -hmm. uh, of second-degree uh, murder. There was controversy then because there, the tape that is now famous and the world has seen uh, remained uh, uh, a secret for about a year or so. Um, and the accusation, this was during your last campaign, was that you withheld it uh, for political reasons. Do you look back and say, gee, I wish I had gotten that tape out? Mm -hmm. Well, you know there was a process in place, uh, like for every city. So, David, you know this, and you've seen this in other cities where there was a process to have those videos, um, obviously, so nobody was changing their story for that. Alderman Sawyer, who's head of the Black Caucus, noted there was no uh, polit politics played in that issue. I said, when I look at it, um, I actually look at it from the inspiration of how we're going to make changes, given our history as a city. There's been, in the 100 years, seven attempts to make changes to the police department. I am convinced that the road we're on now is the one that will actually put this to bed and make the fundamental changes. One third of the rank and file of the police department today, one third, are, have come into the police department with the changes that the superintendent and I have already made. And I think every day that only increases in the sense that they know the world of today. And those are ones with fundamental reforms in place and we'll soon have a consent decree. I think that you have obviously a case going on right now about other officers, so I have to be careful what I say as you're asking this. But Alderman Sawyer spoke to this, the independent prosecutor has spoke to this, and it's not about uh, politics and uh, the, you, the Part of it was that you settled with the family shortly after your re-elections. Yeah, but you know that, that that's been already been out in the press in the sense that the discussion started with that family uh, months beforehand. You mentioned the consent decree. You struck a consent decree with the state attorney general to reform the police department. The Trump administration has been pretty uh, outspoken about, uh, about uh, rejecting uh, such uh, agreements. And the president himself has, has made Chicago uh, a talking point. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that the president's just using, uh, well, he's done that with Philadelphia and Atlanta, but nothing like he's done in Chicago because he's playing. Because of you? Well, there's a bit about, there's a bit of me, uh, and because I've actually punched him in the nose. And he thinks that if he can try to bully people, and that's not going to be different. I've said, and I've declared that Chicago will be a Trump free zone. Uh, and I stand by that because I think the policies that he's advocated are quite divisive. I think he also tries to do it for uh, trying to play to, quote unquote, his political base and use Chicago as a, a shorthand. And I reject that as well. 
Let me uh, uh, just talk a little bit about your your history. You worked, as I mentioned, uh, for two presidents in separate periods uh, in your life. The first time you arrived there, you were a, uh, I would say, a brash young political director. There's a picture over my shoulder of you scowling as a young man uh, at the White House. And within six months, uh, you got uh, thrown out of that job, largely at the instance of the first, then first lady, Hillary Clinton. What do you look at when you look back at yourself then and say, what was I thinking? What do you mean? I, you mean from getting in a conflict with the first lady? Well, do you think mm -hmm. that's what it was, or do you think it was a bit of your, I think your own an, there was brass? A, there was a lot of things. I mean, I disagreed, uh, and I, it was, I said it. So, uh, uh, and I thought that we should not be doing certain things that we were, and I was willing to speak up. I, look, I, one of the things I admire both about President Clinton and President Obama is they never had a problem if I walked in the Oval Office, or anybody for that matter. I probably abused it too much, telling them what I thought. Um, uh, and being honest and forthright. Uh, I learned a lot uh, when I almost got uh, fired. I learned, uh, I, I think, I learned what, who counted in my life, who were real friends. I also uh, learned how to pick myself up and uh, uh, dust myself off and not give in and give up. Well, and I, also, I, I think I advised you to come home. Not, and you not, didn't. Not, you, 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 you think you advised you, me? You uh, actually told me to fold it in. You, uh, and you refused to leave. The chief of staff said, you're, you're fired. <laughs> and, and you, and you, I, let me say this. If anybody had done to me what I did to the chief of staff, then I would have fired them. I just, I said to Mac McClarty, when he said, you're fired, I said that um, there's only one person in this bill. I don't know where I even got the, the gumption uh, to say what I said, which is, there's only one person that can fire me as president of the United States. And I would have, as a chief of staff, I would have fired somebody if I said that. And, uh, or said something else. And then Bill Clinton said, okay, I'm gonna give you special projects. My first, and that was, uh, I did the assault weapon ban, the Brady Bill, a couple other things, uh, NAFTA for President Clinton, and uh, the 100,000 community police officers, and worked my way up to being senior advisor. I mean, you, other people, uh, uh, Bill Daly, all said, come home, forget about it, it's over. And I said, no. This is what I wanted to do in my life, and I'm not going to just walk out like that. And failing, I say this in commencement, Justice, I believe this, failing is going to be where you learn the most of what you got to do to make the changes you need to be successful. But I don't know anybody who hates it more than you. Failing? I don't know. i got two brothers that equally hate failing equal to me. Well, yeah. Yeah, I don't like failing, but I actually learned a lot from it. Uh, and I have made plenty of mistakes in this job as mayor, made plenty of mistakes as chief of staff, and I try to uh, study it. I don't like doing it. I, do you know anybody that likes failing, David? That's not like no, a No, but a, I, a you're allergic object. to it in a way that is, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but you're allergic Are, to it, this, it in a way. Is this session covered by Blue Cross and Blue Shield? I'm going to $150 <laughs> that you'll get, there'll be a bill uh, in the Well, mail. obviously the therapy's worth only 150 bucks. Let's talk about the audacity of hope. I remember calling you at the end of the 2008 campaign I on instructions. I remember not trying to take your phone call. I was happy. Right, right. because Amy you knew happy. I was calling you. You were in the House. You were on a track perhaps to become Speaker someday. Uh, but President Obama, President-elect Obama, it was actually Senator Obama when he asked me to call you. He said, call Ron because I, I, wanna, I want him to be the Chief of Staff. And uh, 
You remember our conversation? I don't remember it as a conversation. No, it wasn't a conversation, <laughs> and, and you use words that we probably can't use here. You really didn't want that job. I, I didn't. I'm, I'm honored. I did it. It was my, uh, I talked to, uh, you know, I, as I said to Zeke, you know, Grandpa would say if the president asked you, uh, it's yes or yes, sir, and you got to figure out which of those two answers you get to give. I, here's the thing, David. I yeah, would, that's what you said. Don't have him call because I'll uh, have to say, say yes. Yeah, and I don't want to say yes. And I knew that I was, because of Grandpa, y you only get to say yes or yes, sir, to the president of the United States. I, two things. One, um, my career where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, was on a trajectory. And I worked very hard as a chairman of the DCCS caucus chair to secure that. Amy and I and the kids had a life that balanced what I was interested in without any way adversely affecting uh, mm -hmm. Zachariah, Alana, and Leah. Um, and um, that, you know, as my friend, is really... And I found... Uh, we found a balance and also a way to have... Uh, our home, a Jewish home, and the, our kids educated in Chicago without it, uh, my work in any way challenging And you had to childhood. throw that over. And not, not only just, that, you walked into an unholy mess. Uh, <laughs> that, talk about the first months well, of that. Talk about the first one, months of that. I'm, I'm going to finish one thing. Because yeah. Not only did I have to uh, walk away from that, I had to leave my family behind. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, and the good news is uh, our kids are great, and uh, they, uh, um, and they, and mainly Amy has done a tremendous job uh, getting the kid through both a mayoralty, a chief of staff, and Congress without it being a negative, in fact, being a positive to their development, and that to me is more important. Let me let me take you back to those first months because what must, I remember is abject fear. <laughs> How close were we to? You were very much in the hub of the financial discussions. How close were we to the co collapse of the financial system and okay. the Second Great Depression? It was a, I always said this, we were, in a, we were not in a Great Recession. We were in a, there was six months we were in a small D depression. And um, the fa uh, what we had to do was both uh, obviously get resources into the economy and then also restore confidence in both the government and the economy. And what, and I take everybody back. One, uh, we're, uh, because you are interviewing me just in the shadows of uh, President Bush laying in state, he had to deal with the savings and loan industry. President Obama had to deal with the entire financial sector. Other presidents had to deal with Chrysler. This president had to deal with the entire auto industry. Other presidents had a short-term 11-month recession. He had to deal with the greatest recession that was now bordering for a period of time on a depression. Any one of those elements would have defined a presidency. He had to deal with all of it simultaneously. And fear um, is one word, but there was basically, like I remember going into President Bush, 43, his office, where he explained to me, okay, I'm going to give $20 billion to the auto industry. This is six weeks of uh, cash burn rate. This was in the interim between... Be President-elect, one president, president-elect, and he was explaining to me, Josh Boltman brought me in. He and I had lunch. He said, I want to tell you what we're going to do. You got six weeks. That's it. Chrysler, GM and Chrysler are going belly up. Ford had some cash to work on, but the basic industrial base of America was going to shut down. Um, 
that became an issue because of what we did. Mitt Romney said it should go belly up, it let was, it go. So President, yeah. President uh, Obama took a different course. You look at the financial sector. There's something we did. I mean, I believed after we, uh, if you really look back at the last 15 years, the policies that were put in place were good policies, horrible politics. And a lot of that politics were still rumbling through our system today because the people at the very top and the people at the very bottom, the middle class felt, are getting taken care of. You and their were concerned kids are getting, about that. I, that's why, David, you remember this. I said after both the stimulus bill and financial uh, uh, lifeline of eight, both of those $800 billion, we should do Old Testament justice. Said it then which was financial reform, reform of the uh, banking system. People needed the sense that the people that were getting bailed out and access to their wallet needed to be held accountable. And, and it cost no money. And it would have been bipartisan. And a lot of things would have gotten done politically to put a Band-Aid over something that was bleeding. And our political system, we never brought a banker yeah. to trial. Right. We, the financial reform looked like, in the end of the day, banks won. And in the end of the day, the middle, we have, we're in the middle of a middle-class revolt because they felt like the guys at the top who got taken care of and at the bottom never got held accountable. Were and you, they were, don't think there's accountability. And I said that then, even another, though I lost the fight. Another big decision was the decision to move forward on health mm -hmm. reform. You, it's uh, on the public record. You were reluctant about it. I've been honest about my concerns about it. Uh, it was an issue in 2010 that played against uh, Democrats. Democrats lost. Were you uh, surprised in 2018 to see the issue turn come around and become a strength for uh, for Democrats? Well, two things. One is we were. Let's. I want to clear the record. I said a financial reform before healthcare, and healthcare should be targeted because there have been a lot of different attempts. Not that you shouldn't do it, but more targeted because you were also going to waste a lot of time, and you had Supreme Court. You had climate change, all the things he wanted to deal with. That said, uh, what also played out in this election wasn't just Obamacare, it was cost control. And I am a big advocate of a lot of the piece of health care reform that dealt with coverage is being dealt with, and it did turn into, a, finally, a political asset rather than a liability. But also a lot of candidates, if you look at the ads, dealt with cost control. Well, pre-existing conditions was a big issue. As, well, was finally, as was prescription let, drug crisis. Let, let me just ask you, compare the two presidents you work for, Clinton and Obama. <laughs> I mean, they're vastly different people. How much left time do we have left in the show? Well, not a lot. Be a little disciplined. Not one way. Well, here's the thing. They're uh, totally different and, and very similar. They're both very competitive on the similarity. Uh, they show it in different ways. Um, one is a person from a place called Hope. One wrote about the audacity of Hope. Both ran as outsiders. Both challenged the system as is. Neither one was supposed to be our nominee, and ne neither one was supposed to make it to the presidency, and neither one was supposed to get reelected. But as people to work for and the people you knew? Um, they were, well, I had different roles. I would just say, I have a picture in my office. Um, I've I have a number of pictures, but there's two or three of President Clinton and two or three of President Obama. And I tell the story of their styles, more style than substance. They both had the same aspirations for America, governing in different times. Um, the, I have a picture of the first meeting with President Obama the first time. 
be sitting at his Oval Office. The desk is clean, the fire is going, and we're talking. There's nothing on the desk, it's the first day. I have a picture three years later, there's nothing on the desk. And he was unbelievably meticulous. And I have his to-do list that he gave me as my gift from 2010 that had domestic, administrative, foreign, extras. I have pictures of President Clinton on his desk right after we had done the assault weapon ban. And I think, um, I forgot what other legislation it was. Uh, and it looks like just, kind of looks like your desk, David. All right, we don't have to go there. <laughs> Chaos everywhere. Yeah. But if you looked at President Clinton, there was actually pens, coins that are military. There were books that he was reading. There were folders that was, and if you knew him, there was actually more, there was an order underneath that chaos. Now, I'll give you another example. Uh, you know my workout habits. I'm up at quite early in the morning, et cetera. President Obama, all of them called no matter what. Fast forward, some Shabbat President Obama called about what we need to do on certain um, uh, financial stuff. It was on a Friday night, our Shabbat dinner, Sabbath dinner at home. And he said, I apologize, but it was like at 9.30. And he says, you know, I'm about to go to bed, or 10 o'clock, et cetera. When we were passing the assault weapon ban uh, in 94, President Clinton called at 10 o'clock. You get the White House operator that says, uh, uh, Mr. Manuel, yes, the president would like to speak to you. And you kind of sit up. I'm talking, and he goes, who is that? I goes, it's the president. And uh, we're going over votes to get. She had fallen asleep in the middle of the conversation. 2.30 in the morning. Phone rings. I'm sleeping on the uh, side of the, of the bed where the phone is. And uh, it's the White House operator at 2.30 in the morning, President Clinton. And he says, um, uh, look, I finished all my calls. Here's what it is. And he goes, uh, give me some more names. And now the vote is tomorrow, and this is or two days from then. And uh, I said, Mr. President, it's 2.30 in the morning. You can't do that. I said, he goes, no, I'm ready to call it up. And Amy rolls over and goes, who is that? And I go, it's the president. She goes, she thought it was one conversation. We were still, she goes, tell him to go to bed. <laughs> and you know, and Obama, President Obama would no more, A, ask the names of members, call you at 2.30 in the morning, and think that you could call other people at 2.30. President Clinton, it's 2.30. I'm in the middle of my workday. And he would be calling all the way now. President, um, stylistically, et cetera, President uh, Obama, if it's an 8.30 meeting, he's in the office at 8.25. If it's an 8.30 meeting, President Clinton, whatever, because he'd been up till 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, calling members, chit-chatting, going over stuff. They had different styles um, and uh, different areas, uh, different ways of doing things, but they were both um, very competitive, very tenacious people uh, that uh, I've been honored to uh, ask to serve. So as you like to say, this is holy ground here <laughs> in Chicago, Manny's, mm -hmm. uh, a deli on the near south side. Used to be a, a, a Jewish peddler mm -hmm. district here on, on Maxwell Street. Maxwell, yeah. And I don't know, we've known each other, what, 35 years? Yeah, this must be like 120th Emil here. And we're still alive. <laughs> yeah, but we're not going to Northwestern to get our check our heart right now. <laughs> so talk about Chicago. And what makes Chicago, you know, there's the reputation about corruption and Al Capone and all that stuff. What makes Chicago unique in terms of the people? Well, Chicago is unique because I, I re 
there are 140 languages spoken in our public schools. People from every walk of life, every part of the city, who have a kind of Chicago swagger. And some people say they wear it on their sleeve, but I mean, they're really, they're down to earth, they're grounded, they got two feet uh, well planted, and they're not scared to tell you what they think of you, both on the positive and right to your face what they think of the negative. And that's not in um, DC, New York, LA, there's the subtleties. We don't have subtleties here in Chicago. Yeah. We have it in your face. If I walk around, I'll get people will tell me what is on their mind. Yeah. Whether I ask or not. And, that, and that's actually, I don't say that, that's refreshing. Yeah. I was going to say keep talking. And, <laughs> uh, so this is, a, uh, this is the place where I, I, when I was in the political business, the campaign business, I would bring uh, candidates here because you could meet everybody here. It's a, just a completely diverse uh, place. Uh, and both presidents that you worked for uh, came, here. came here, Obama Mate. and Clinton. This is a Who's stop the greatest? On the Talk to me about the. You've been around politics for yeah. all your adult life. Who, who's the best politician that you've ever known? Ever? Uh, you've I, ever I, seen and experienced? Bill Clinton. Why? Um, he's multilingual. Bill Clinton can go into a boardroom and be in a Baptist church in the afternoon and not miss a beat or a translation problem. And I do think part of politicians, at least for a leader, is able to be able to communicate with uh, different groups of people but give them a vision and an understanding and not get lost in that translation. Some people that are in public life are one-dimensional and I mean that in their capacity. Uh, in the same way I would, you know, and so I would say the best all-around politician from speaker to policy to politics to retail, wholesale, I would say Bill Clinton. Uh, he used to be pretty like, good on a cafeteria line too before he when he was still a carnivore. Well, let me just say this. That's what made him a good politician. I will, uh, <laughs> I will never forget this. Uh, um, there was a particular point. We're down in the campaign. He's in the... Uh, this is 92. 92. He's in the governor's mansion. It was, let's just say, it, it was a stressful moment in the campaign. Of which there were many. One, uh, yes, it was pre-New Hampshire. They would just leave it there. <laughs> uh, it was, I think it was around uh, the, uh, the draft letter. Now, he's off in New Hampshire. He came back for a weekend. And we were at the mansion on a night, and there was a, they made a big bowl of tuna fish, a tuna fish. There was a loaf of bread put out and uh, some mayonnaise. And it was on the counter near the, in the kitchen. I don't know, he must have made like eight sandwiches without missing a meal. <laughs> and then like by the sick, you're just kind of like, and he could. How he dealt with stress, huh? He dealt with it that way. I would probably swim, you know me, I would probably swim another half mile on top of the mile. So he dealt with it that way and that's how he dealt with it. But he could go at an eating and not miss a beat. Let me, let me ask you a question uh, about him and I know how close yeah. you are and how much affection uh, you have for him. In this last campaign, he was nowhere to be seen. People did not mm -hmm. uh, bring him there. Yeah. Um, how, how did how did how did you process that? Look, I, I think um, you lived through all of that in the White House, the, all the the Monica Lewinsky stuff and everything else. Well, you know, I, I don't. I haven't talked to him, so it's not fair. But my, I know him, and I would say that probably uh, has its own pain. He is a great. Uh, one, he's a great politician. He loves, I hate using this word, but 
He loves the sports of politics, and he's, and he's competitive. I've said in 2012 he was the single most valuable campaigner yeah. that Barack Obama had. So to be on had. the sidelines has, has its own dimension uh, that's got to be uh, hard. That said, you know, I talk to him regularly. I still consider him, uh, uh, I consider him a friend and a re intellectual and political resource. Um, but, you know, I w you said the best I've ever seen. It is the I've seen, obviously, I've read about others, meaning Roosevelt and Kennedy. Yeah. I don't think you can make it to the Oval Office without being a good politician. And whatever you want to say, I have my disagreements and violent disagreements with this president. He was a better uh, politician than Hillary was. Because he, he, and I don't agree with that. No, one of the things uh, that he's had to deal with from the beginning yeah. is the special counsel, our investigations yeah. in the White House. You, you lived through that uh, in the Clinton White House. How debilitating is that? Well, they're doing something we didn't do. I mean, if you take the Lewinsky one, not forget the travel office or anything like that, we actually... Cordoned it off. Cordoned it off, isolated it so that the president could go to work. And we said that. This president's decided to immerse himself in the investigation, the scandal, and not do a degree of separation and do and say, I'm not going to let that affect the business that the people elected me. I think that's going to come back uh, uh, and they're going to rue the day they didn't do that. Totally. I can be wrong. Maybe we're in maybe I don't understand this, but I think they're making a big mistake. I was in the White House when you were chief of staff. I know how you did the job. And I what look at this White House as you probably do, and I wonder how is this working? How is how does this operate? Well, I don't think it's working. How how can you come out of a meeting with China have seven different interpretations? And I'm not talking about what the Chinese said. I'm talking about <laughs> our time. Okay, it's not working. And I don't and, and you know this 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 is back to something we talked about earlier, David. Any other president, in, and I count Bush 43 in this, Bush 41, they would be at 55 or better with this economy. He is at 45 because of this White House, and this White House is a reflect, as the old Italian says, the fish rots from the head down. They walked out of there, one administrator, one person said this is what's said, he said one thing, somebody else said everything. It's not functioning. They're lucky they haven't had a real challenge yet. And I would say to you is uh, that that um, there is no cohesion. There's nobody. By challenging me like a big crisis. They haven't had a big crisis. They haven't had a savvy financial crisis. They haven't, and it's not because of their capacity. Uh, and I just will say to you, it's not functioning. And um, and it's actually, but it's a reflection. That is how he wants it. He doesn't want anybody else running the day to day. Let, let me uh, ask you about your own table growing up. Uh, you'd start talking about your family. <laughs> your, uh, your dad uh, came from uh, what was, uh, he was from Israel, but he was born in Palestine, Palestine. Yeah. part of the Irgun, uh, yeah. <laughs> which was a... Uh, uh, Why don't we have violent disagreements? Yes. I said, you're nothing but a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and your mom uh, was a uh, civil rights uh, leader. Yeah. leader here. Here in Chicago. Here in Chicago. Um, these, these were pretty forceful people, and I get a sense uh, when I talk to you about your childhood mm -hmm. uh, and knowing them as I do, that your dinner Were you putting your hand on my hand because you thought I was going to grab I a want, I don't want your leaf. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, that, it was kind of a combination of a sitcom and the Hunger Games <laughs> at, your, uh, at your table. Is that fair? 
or was it more Hunger Games? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you guys were you were expected to excel, and you and your brothers have done that. Two things. First of all, let's reset the table. For three years, Grandma and Grandpa, my mothers, lived with us, so they're at the table. And I actually think it is really important for kids. For another eight years, my father's mother, because he was the only son and he was the only one left in the family, she lived with us, left Israel, came, lived with us, went, goes back. So there wasn't a nuclear family for my whole childhood. Um, uh, That said, we we were expected to excel. You had to have known the news and current events to participate. You were not allowed to participate if you hadn't read a paper. Participate, that means like come to the table. Yeah, you couldn't come to the table or you couldn't talk if you had not read the paper or listened to the news. And I would say yes, excel, but there was one other thing was you would never bring shame to the family which meant to fail. So yes, you were expected to uh, exceed, excel, um, make your mark in life, but you could not bring shame to the family by having failed. That's a lot of pressure. You're telling me I'm still dealing with this. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know you are. No, I Um, mean, and that, but you know what? Um, uh, And I also think a lot of people talk about my my, uh, parents or what did your mother do. First of all, they both did it. My grandparents did it. The other thing, it was also um, uh, being uh, uh, a family of immigrants and and I mean by that is immigrants have a certain edge because of the sacrifice and struggle. You gave up things, you gave up where you knew, you gave, gave up family, you gave up uh, relationships, the known for the unknown. And the kids of immigrants, or at least ours, and I think I see it with a lot of frequency as mayor, you are not allowed to uh, be frivolous with that. You're not allowed to take all the things that people didn't, you know, I run into uh, families all the time where somebody who was trained as a doctor is now a taxi driver. Their children are exceeding because you cannot be frivolous to what you, the sacrifice and struggle your parents went through. So we can joke about our family, and it's worth joking about. We all talk about it. Um, it's lo- I, sometimes I say I lost this finger at my yeah, family. Yeah, hold dinner. your hand up there. I, yeah. I, yeah, I lost that at the you, dinner you table. Would, you would, you would. That is like an editing device for you <laughs> because that 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 finger. That finger fully engaged would have gotten you into a lot more fights than even you got into uh, over time. You lost that in, a, in an accident at Arby's, cutting know, meat, meat, just yeah. like this type of thing. So, You're, but, so your brother Zeke is yeah. a world-class medical ethicist and oncologist. An oncologist. Uh, your brother Ari yeah. is a uh, is not just a Hollywood agent. He was the model for Entourage. Uh, the character, the central character in Entourage, and he was, there was some doubt about him when he was a kid. He had learning disabilities. Some people thought he wouldn't go to college. Well, two things. One is, um, when there was the West Wing show and Entourage on, one character in West Wing being based on me, one on uh, Entourage. The Josh Lyman character. So we used to say to Zeke, Where's your show? Like, what have you done for the family? You haven't (laughs) done anything. You've embarrassed the family. Uh, You know, how come there's nothing about you? And he would obviously, as the firstborn of a Jewish family, very special, and take a lot of comfort. Now, to Ari, um, uh, and I give... You're your younger brother. I give Ari a lot of 
Zeke and I talk about this, and we talk about it with Ari. Here you have a kid with um, learning disabilities, dyslexia, attention deficit disorder, and he finds himself in a career that requires reading scripts. He would get up at 4, 3.30 in the morning to read and be prepared for the day, and he had to get up three, four hours earlier than anybody um, just so he could function in the day and know his material. Uh, and I, you know, that takes a lot of discipline, a lot of focus, and a lot of fear of failure to be that successful. There's another, you mentioned uh, the uh, West Wing character. You also were a character on Saturday Night Live when you were chief of staff. <laughs> Every and time I'm Andy about to eat, you my meals. <laughs> <laughs> and that character it was a, a bit of a caricature. I won't say how much of a caricature uh, it was, but it was like the the uh, profane, cutthroat uh, guy. That That is... That is the gestalt. That's the Ram Emanuel. That's the public Ram. You know there's another Ram. I do, but okay. they don't. <laughs> well, um, let's keep it secret then. <laughs> no, but um, uh, how much of that is an affect and how much of that is real and how much has it helped you? Yeah. You know, I think there's this sense that, you, that if there's a wall, you'll run through it, but I know you as someone who tries to find ways to navigate around the wall. Well, I think there's... Uh, some of it's real and some of it's uh, affected. You don't, you have one gear. And what I'm, I should probably say pointing, to be successful in politics, or like, look, as a mayor, I've never lost a vote in city council. You can't have but one. But who's counting? A middle child. <laughs> uh, you can't do that if you go seven and a half years with one gear. When you need to be and just the other night, I was with two aldermen on something in different ways. Forceful, direct. On the other hand, you could also cajole, entice. And uh, on the other hand, if people are scared, that can also, and feared, as to quote Machiavelli, chapter six, that's not a bad tool either. It just doesn't mean you put it in that gear all the time. You couldn't do it. So you, we talked earlier about 2020. Uh, we didn't finish the discussion. I can't let you go without. I can't eat my food. You can eat your food. I'll, it's I'll not ask a an overlong question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, as you look at the field, yeah, are there people who intrigue you? Are there people who say they have promised? What, what are you looking for? You mentioned you, generational change. You mentioned outside of Washington and so on. But there are significant figures in the race already. Yeah, look, I don't, if you start naming names, um, and I know you want me to do that, then you're going to go, how, I've left somebody off, and I'll, you know, once this airs, I'll get, uh, look, there's nothing like a process. So forget that I know politics been through four now presidentials. I actually, the process is the best predictor, and it will produce. I actually think one of the things we had last time is we shortchanged the process yeah. of candidates. I think it's uh, significant that we have a bunch of healthy. I know what my, I know where our successes have happened and where our failures have happened when you look back in retrospect. Um, on the mayor all the field, you have Bloomberg and Garcetti. Um, mayors. Uh, yeah, mayors, and I think that's interesting at this time in history that all of a sudden mayors are emerging as potential pre presidential contenders. Um, you ever think about it? No. I've done eight years 
uh, in the Oval. I've been honored. Uh, I actually think uh, uh, I think this is the era of cities and stuff like that. I'm not interested in doing. You're writing that. a book about that. Yes, I'm writing a book about. I think. Look, 50 years ago, mayors went to Washington and said, "Save us. We're burning." Today, we go to Washington and say, "Let's save you, because you're burning." And that tells you what's happening in cities. And not only that, more and more things that you used to assume the national government would do, cities, universities, foundations, are taking it incumbent upon themselves to get it done, because they have to. National government's not doing it. And that makes what cities, mayors, and municipalities do all that more significant. So you have the two mayors. Yeah. You have mayors. You have uh, uh, three or four governors. Um, obviously, you have three, four, five senators. I think that's maybe as a, many as nine. And I personally, I have, I've obviously expressed my view. I think that's a. Uh, I don't want to own Washington as a party. I want Donald Trump to own all. If I can use one more Yiddish word, all the Michigas of Washington. <laughs> I don't. We're we're in the temple, so we I, are, I can, yeah, I can yeah. use that. I don't want to. I don't think it's smart. Have him own what the dysfunction. Have him, have him own the corruption. Um, I think that's an added advantage uh, in that area. I think you have, uh, I think go go former Governor McAuliffe is looking at it. Hinkenlooper is looking at it. The Governor of Montana is looking at it. The Governor Bullock, of Washington yeah. State is, uh, Bullock is looking at it. Governor uh, Jay Inslee, who ran the governors of Washington. And this, yeah, Washington State, he's looking at it. We're going to have a lot of candidates. Um, and I think the process will begin to shape a winner. And that's the only thing that processes can do. So. I mean, we travel around a lot uh, this, in this city. You come in here today. You uh, you are conf uh, you are greeted by people, mm -hmm. high fives, mm -hmm. fist pumps, and sometimes open-handed salutes mm -hmm. that are not entirely. Friendly. As I always say, in being mayor, you either get thumbs up or the one finger wave. <laughs> but you love it. Love it. It's the greatest. And how are and you? It's also great to be in this city, being the mayor. And how are you going to adjust to life without it? And and don't uh, don't give me a road answer because I know that you that was one of the things that you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I mean, uh, but part of let me step back one second. You're my friend. I think whether it was moving to Little Rock leaving the Obama, uh, Clinton White House, deciding to run for Congress, deciding to lead, take on different jobs in Congress or then go to the Oval and then leave the Oval. Part of life is knowing when you've run your race, you've done the best, and also knowing when to leave. This will be hard. I make no bones about it because I love the people, I love the city, and I'll continue to live here and continue uh, that. I think missing the tempo the things that you do in this job um, will take adjustment. If I didn't say that, I wasn't honest about the first part, about how much I love it. So, uh, but it's time for a transition, and I'll do it. No more races, no more campaigns? Probably not. I think that, I, 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 it's hard to say absolutely, but I would, if I had, a, if you said no, you gotta decide, probably not. Job in Washington, if there were a Democratic president? If they ask, I may be interested if it has to be the right one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, I don't, um, I'm not going to take any job in that effort, but, you know, uh, if there's a possibility, but, you know, when I walk out the door, uh, I'm obviously going to, Amy and I are going to live here, 
uh, one of the things uh, I've had on my list, so we'll do it in the first week, is I've always wanted to bike around Lake Michigan, the whole 800 some odd miles, and so I'm gonna go do that with a friend. Um, and, uh, uh, but my goal is to stay here and be active in the civic life of the city that I love. I may not do, as I, I will not do it as mayor, but I will do it as a citizen, and I think that's an important role too. And I gotta, I probably, since you're asking me honestly, the key <laughs> is to figure out how to stay active civically without, I don't wanna get in the way of my uh, successor. He or she should have the right to be their mayor without a shadow of a former mayor. You expect to get involved nationally in the 2020 race with a candidate? I, you know, that's a fair question. I don't know the answer yet. Mm-hmm. My guess is, first thing is I'm going to get, uh, I know I'm talking about doing certain things in my life. I'll get that organized. I want to succeed at that first. I don't want to just go right to uh, politics. I probably will, but I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I have to ask you this. You, You've asked me 20 questions. Now you have to say I yes, have to Yes, because I just thought of it. Oh, okay. Um, oh, this is an original thought? This is, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I want you to give me an original <laughs> answer. Um, B. For a guy, you, you said earlier that, you know, th- th- there was a thing in your family, and I think it's not uncommon to immigrant families, Jewish immigrant families, but don't shame the family. Hmm? Do not fail. That seems like a really hard thing for a guy who not only puts his name on a ballot, but is the mayor of a city where people are judging you every second of every day. And there are times when the judgment has been harsh. Mm -hmm. Poll numbers have been bad. People have been harsh. Commentary has been Mm -hmm. harsh. That seems almost a masochistic impulse (laughs) on your part. Well, two things. I don't mean to tell stories, so I'll tell you, um, but I will tell you another story. Uh, it was like the third or fourth day of the teacher strike. And this is early in my term, and it was over a full school day and a full school 2012, year. 2012, I think. Yeah. Um, the kids in Chicago had the shortest school day in America. That 7,000 school districts were last. And outside the front door of the house, between my front door and getting in the car, is 30 feet, and about 300 of my most closest friends now, yelling at me. And uh, um, I'm about to walk out, and Amy looks at me and goes, you know, I've seen you through an impeachment, I've seen you through healthcare, I've seen you through the assault weapon ban, I've seen you through the balanced budget agreement. Uh, I've never seen you calmer. Um, and that's because like, anytime I have a major thing, I can't sleep. And, uh, and I go, well, I've never felt more right about what I'm doing. Not that I didn't feel right about the other things, but this was mine. And, you know, and then I open the door and I go out. And so you and I have talked. To the warm welcome of the crowd. To 300 people saying things about me, my family, the kids, and everything. But in politics, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing and then be tough enough and ruthless enough to get it done. Um, it did take a lot of oomph every day when you're getting beaten down not wanting to fail, and you're one of, you have the incredible love of a wife, um, knowing that what you're doing is what you think is the right thing, spiritual leaders who help you 
keep centered. And uh, that gives you the moral jumper cables to keep going. I'm not saying it's easy, um, but it's the right, if you think it's the right thing to do, it's worth doing. I've always said that um, you have to be a larger than life figure to be the mayor uh, of Chicago, and you have been that, and <laughs> you've left your mark here. And um, I'm sure we'll be back here at Manny's after this is all done. The good news it's is we'll be able to finish. incredible ride. Yeah, it's been a great ride. And I'm, uh, David, somebody says, oh, you feel burdened. First of all, I never thought this job was a burden. I always thought it was a gift. I am the son of an immigrant that's been in the White House twice, Congress, and the mayor of the third largest city. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. From one uh, son of an immigrant <laughs> to another. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.